0: You're listening to the Pip Podcast. Today Robin speaks with Alison Puglio about the fascinating and diverse world of fungi. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Pip Podcast. I'm Robin from Pip Magazine, and I am speaking with Alison Puglio, an ecologist, an environmental writer and photographer, and author of many books on the topic of fungi. She is active in Australian and international fungal conservation and her fungal forays are conducted across both hemispheres, attracting a range of people from foragers and philosophers to rangers and traditional owners. Her most recent book, Underground Lovers, Encounters with Fungi, shares her insights into the world of fungi and helps us get a deeper understanding of the importance of fungi. This podcast is brought to you today from the lands of the Jajawarang people, where Alison is speaking from, and the Dawa people of the Yuan Nation, where I am. So, welcome, Alison, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule today.
1: Thank you, Robin. And thanks so much for your invitation and your interest in this subject.
0: Oh, it's so fascinating. Like from reading your book and reading some other books and listening to different things at the moment, my mind is being blown <laughs> by. <laughs> um just how um just how intricate the connections are of mushrooms with ev- with fungi sorry with everything and just how many different and diverse ways that they can be used so you know i, I mean fungi range for everything from sort of foraging mushrooms and eating them to even things like making clothing and packaging products and medicinal uses and including the use of psilocybin, which seems to be quite in the news lately. But would it be fair to say that your main area of interest, although you're right on many things, is the importance of fungi in our ecological networks?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So My background is as an ecologist, and I've always been very interested in ecology of all sorts of ecosystems not just terrestrial ecosystems but freshwater marine ecosystems as well mm. but the conservation the diversity the ecology of fungi is certainly my main interest as you suggest
0: yeah so now I'm sure a lot of our listeners understand the sort of basic concept of fungi and mycelium in the soil and how it connects all living things and plants and animals and but could you share your, with us your explanation of fungal networks and the symbiotic relationships that
1: Sure, absolutely. So when we see that mushroom pop up above the soil or the the puffball or the coral, whatever the formation is, what we're seeing there is just the reproductive part of the fungus, what's commonly called a sporing body. Sometimes we hear it called fruiting body, but it's not technically a fruit, it's not a plant, it's a fungus, but that's just the bit that holds Mm. the spores. It's a bit, I guess, like the equivalent of the flower in plants or the genitalia in animals but the actual fungus organism itself exists as this network or tapestry of these long cells called hyphae that collectively form the fungus mycelium i know there's a few terms here that might be unfamiliar to listeners but what that mycelium is that's the actual fungus organism the living growing feeding part of the organism and the mushroom in a sense is just the organ of the organism so we know these Mycelial tapestries of different fungi connect up under the soil, but they also connect with plants. And in something what's known as a mycorrhizal symbiosis, the prefix myco means fungus, rhizal means roots, and symbiosis means a union or an alliance. Mm -hmm. We know that most of our plants, certainly, for example, every eucalypt out there, every conifer, conifer, most broad-leafed northern hemisphere trees, every orchid, many, many shrubs and grasses, many of our commercial plants and crop species form these relationships with fungi. So we're not quite sure how many, but probably something like over 90% of them form these relationships where the mycelium actually attaches to the plant root and expands it out, increasing the absorbable surface area of the plant's roots, helping it attract, uh, helping it access water, nutrients that they then send back to the plant. And in return, the plant gives the fungus a lovely feed of sugars That it produces through photosynthesis so that's it in a nutshell
0: Mm, yeah it's quite a bit to get your head around but it is (laughs) but basically it's um the mycelia are kind of helping those roots extend further than they might normally and get more nutrients and water from the soil is that is that
1: right That's exactly right. And the mycelium is also much, much finer than even the finest root. So it can actually get in between all those tiny little gaps and spaces, those interstitial spaces between particles of of sand and dirt and access areas that the plant root itself can't access. Mm. And because fungi secrete enzymes, they can break down organic matter. So if they find a leaf or a bit of wood in the soil, they secrete enzymes to break those down and they unlock the nutrients and make them available to the plant. So the plant doesn't have that suite of enzymes that the fungus does, so it can actually unlock nutrients and send them back to the fungus. Mm. Sorry, to the plant, I'm sorry. The fungus sends back to the plant, yeah.
0: So and how far do they reach? Like I I know I've sort of heard about trees, you know, kilometres apart being connected and things that can happen to one plant can affect another. Is that right? Is that a correct sort of understanding?
1: Yeah, look, we're still really trying to track this and the person who's done the most research on this is probably Suzanne Simard in British Columbia and she was formerly a, a forest scientist and she's probably done some of the more extensive work on understanding which fungi form relationships with which trees and how expansive these networks are. We really don't know. There's still you know, so much research that needs to be done and sometimes what happens, you probably heard of this concept, the wood wide web that mm. the idea is it mirrors the internet. We do have these very vast mycelial mycorrhizal networks under the soil, but the reality is we're not really sure how expansive they are, and sometimes what happens is we get a lovely metaphor like the wood wide web, which is really helpful for people to understand what's going on. And, you know, we realise that there's much more connectivity than we previously thought, but sometimes the metaphor can get a bit ahead of the science. So at yeah. the moment there's a little bit of resistance to this notion that the wood wide web could really be exaggerating just how vast or how expansive they they really are, and also that it's not all just cooperative. There's certainly lots of competition going on there in the soil as well. Mm.
0: So, I mean, if that's the case with fungi helping plants uh, in that way, then it's obviously quite important that our fungal ecosystems are healthy and we're doing what we can to look after them. Is that, is that true?
1: You're absolutely spot on. And I think this is when you look at the difference between, say, a forest ecosystem, ecosystem and an agricultural field, what usually happens is because of the constant disturbance of the soil in an agricultural field, because we're tilling and we're irrigating, we're adding synthetic fertilizers and other chemicals, and often burning. Because of that constant disturbance, we've actually we actually break up that mycelial scaffold. We lose the fungi in those soils because if you imagine it's like a it's like a network or tapestry or architecture or scaffold in the soil, and every time we turn over that soil, we actually destroy the fungus organism. So we've lost fungi from those agricultural soils. And so the thing difference with the forest ecosystem, the forest is relatively intact. All those mycorrhizal networks should be in place. And they put that wonderful architecture into the soil. They hold the soil particles apart. They aerate it. They allow water to gently trickle through to those deeper horizons. And they support the plants in that ecosystem. But every time we turn soil over or put you know nutrients or water on it or burn it we lose those fungi from those soils so you're absolutely spot on the more we can retain that fungal network the more robust and more resilient those above-growing ecosystems will be. Mm. So
0: I mean apart from when a mushroom pops up how can you tell how healthy the fungal life is in your own soil whether that be in your own backyard or the forest nearby or
1: I guess one of the best indicators is the diversity. And I don't just mean the diversity of fungi, but the diversity of invertebrates, the diversity of of plant species, the amount of organic matter in the soil. If you pick up a handful of your soil and you can actually see bits of organic matter in there bits of sticks and leaves but also you might notice these long white threads that's the fungal mycelium actually in the soil but also it smells completely different if you've got a handful of agricultural soil which tends to be dominated by bacteria it actually has a very different odor to a handful of healthy soil that has a range of different fungi doing a range of different processes but also a suite of other organisms also bacteria invertebrates other organisms as well so a lot of it is to do with the diversity of organisms in there, but also the diversity of the organic matter itself. If you've got sticks and leaves and branches and logs in your garden, that's mm. going to support more fungi than if you just have wood chips, because wood chips homogenize everything. You know, some fungi want to live on a big piece of bark, some live on just a single stick, others want to live on a an old log. So if you can keep that diversity of organic matter in terms of the shape and size and age and species, you're going to attract a greater diversity of fungi that do more different processes in your garden.
0: Mm, so that would be either by leaving things to break down in place, so not collecting leaves and things like that, and possibly creating your own compost. For, might, might Absolutely, you you do.
1: I think, you know, it's always the real challenge I see with gardening and with horticulture, with how public parks are managed. There's always this tension between the ecology of the system and the aesthetics. It's <laughs> quite often, yeah. you know, we, we love lawns in Australia and we we get offended if you know, a leaf should dare drop on <laughs> it. And so yeah, yeah. Every, you know, we've got this sort of wave of industrial gardening now and everyone's got a leaf blower and everything else. And the, but the problem is every single leaf we remove, we take away the food of fungi that support the plants. So it's always this challenge. I know that, you know, there's a whole lot of considerations in managing a park because there's, you know, human safety considerations as well. And we, the aesthetics, we want it to look nice. But I think if you can, I guess it retain that organic matter and resist breaking it all up and burning it or removing it, you're actually going to do your trees and other plants a great big favor by 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 retaining it. And as you say, you know, creating compost as well, that lovely fermentation and breakdown process of when you've got organic matter you know sitting together and accumulating and breaking down that's absolutely wonderful that's that's what builds diversity in your garden
0: so the good news in that what i'm hearing is the less work you do in the garden the better
1: (laughs) i think so i mean we're very keen to tidy up but i think you know it's it's a difficult thing to convince people to change an aesthetic and if you're used to your paths being swept and you know, every stick being collected as soon as it falls under the tree. But if you keep it there, imagine all that wonderful display of colourful fungi that's going to appear in time. And I think it's really interesting, although, you know, it's interesting to spend time between here and at Europe. And, for example, we're up in spending a bit of time in central Switzerland. They actually let their public gardens, they let the grass grow, you know, half a metre long because they're so worried about pollinators. And within those grasses, it's not just lawn, there's all kinds of, Herbs and sedges and orchids and other things as well that bring in a whole diversity of different insects. So I think there is a shift in how we're thinking about the aesthetics of gardens and that they don't have to be as manicured as we once, you know, thought was a way to look after them. Yeah.
0: And I think our listeners and readers are of that sort of mindset too, to kind of let nature do its thing a bit more. And even things like I mean, a lot of the ideas behind regenerative agriculture, I'm sure, Um, good for fungi and the idea of you know not having cleared earth and not digging up your beds whether that's back garden or you know broad acre farming and yeah using not using pesticides and things like that
1: absolutely I've been so inspired by the regen and other farmers that I work with and, and the horticulturists and seeing this change in thinking about it and and I'm not saying you know look not saying to stop digging, to stop using chemicals, to stop using firewood, whatever. But it's just to ask yourself that question: When I plant this plant, do I need to actually turn over the whole garden, or do I just turn over the bit of soil around where the plant's going in? Or, you know, if I'm using chemical, just to think about the, using it in a very discriminate way. If we put that that overlay of fungi into the equation of how we manage Mm -hmm. ecosystems or gardens then I think we do everything in the garden a favor you know if we just think about okay there are fungi here too we can't see them but if we can retain that network if we can retain the work they do in that scaffold of architecture and we think about how we're using fire or whether we you know when we compact soils for example we can lose those mycelial networks just to put that into the equation I think we make that ecosystem we give it a much better chance to build that robustness
0: So, in your book, you talk about um, thinking like a fungus. (laughs) I guess to you know, if we're going to try and you know help our ecosystems look after fungi, how how can we think like a fungus?
1: I guess historically, so much of our thinking is really based on how we see the needs of flora and fauna, and so. by that I'm saying, let's put the third F into the equation. What are the requirements of a fungus? And So so one example, and I often talk to gardeners about this, is that I understand that people like to to wood chip to make lovely paths through their gardens, and that's fine, but actually on the garden beds themselves, when we homogenise with the use of wood chips, not every fungus wants to live on a one centimetre square wood chip, and this is what I mean thinking like a fungus. Some fungi will only grow on large or within large old logs. Others want bark that's been on the ground for quite a while. There's a very rare fungus On Kangaroo Island off South Australia, that only grows on large, well-rotted sheets of bark of sugar gum. Like
0: it's Mm. got a very
1: specific habitat choice, and I find that fascinating. I mean, we— I mean, perhaps we'll discover one day that actually, you know, it's happy to settle on another piece of eucalyptus bark from another species. But what I mean is that if we can get that greater diversity of species in there by providing not just wood chips, but Organic matter of different shapes and sizes, ages, species, and as you say, it's less work in tidying them up. Then I think we get those different fungi that do different things. And I've completely forgotten what the question was that you asked me. I think I've to the <laughs> I was asking thing. about how to think like a fungi. <laughs> ah, okay. So yeah, just recognising that, like animals and plants, like us, they have different preferences where they want to live and so and one of the things that's quite fun to do whether it's with children or adults you know is to sit down by an old log and just look at it really closely and all the Mm. cracks and crevices and how water moves over it and and how other organisms accumulate in the wet areas algae mosses things like that that live often in concert with fungi so just to imagine that log I mean we can look at that log from a whole different different perspectives we can look at it as someone who wants to cut it up for firewood or we can look at it from an artist's perspective but to look at it from inverted commas the point of view of a fungus you start to see it as this myriad you know all these different habitats and different spaces and cracks and crevices where different fungi could live. Mm.
0: Yeah I must say since reading your book I went um, camping in the bush a couple of weekends ago and yeah, just spending that time in nature and I was really looking at all the lichens and the fungi and just there's so much going on when you just walk through a sort of undisturbed, not completely, but, you know, a more undisturbed forest and you can see. And this oh, this area had had fire come through it recently too nearby and it was just so interesting to see what was going on when you actually stop and just take the time to really take all of that in.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, we're, we live in a pretty fast-forward world these days and I think even just to sit down on the on the forest floor or sit down out in the bush and suddenly you see that everything is moving, everything, you know, the, the activity, the dynamism, the energy there of of different life forms. But I also think with fungi we're not really used to looking at them beyond your classic umbrella shaped cap and stalk style mushroom, if you know what I mean. Like mm. and then we realise, oh, that gelatinous thing lying on the log there, that's actually a fungus. Or as you said, the lichens, they're fungi too. And mm. we start to expand our concept of what fungi are and what they do and where and how they grow and, and how they're so intertwined with everything else there on the forest floor.
0: Mm. And I imagine it's so hard to I mean it's to understand exactly what's going on that rather than trying to do something specific to help them, the best thing to do is to just leave them <laughs> to do what they do on their own and try not to disturb them too much. Yeah, I think
1: that's a good approach. And, look, I really, really appreciate that we want to help. We want to help the garden. We want to help nature recover after disturbance. But what's really hard, particularly with fungi but also with other organisms, we we really just don't understand enough about their needs and so for example we see I very commonly get questions about you know using inoculants and can people encourage fungi in their garden by bringing in inoculants and I can see that fungal inoculants that's a very well intentioned but unless we know how that relationship works between that fungal inoculant and the actual plant species you can throw as much inoculant on the garden as you want, but if it doesn't it hasn't got the tree that that fungus likes, then nothing's going to happen. So I think, mm. do you know what I mean? We just don't have our, our knowledge of fungi. It, it's probably decades, if not a century, behind our knowledge of botany. So we're still figuring out how do these relationships work and what's the particular set of conditions and tolerance ranges of different fungi and how long do these relationships take to establish between plants and fungi. So I think what we can do is, as you suggest, to try and let the ecosystem do it itself, but simply remove the pressures that compromise the fungi. And by the pressures, I mean things like be really aware if you're using heavy machinery or driving over the soil that might compact the soil and take those air spaces out and make it less inhabitable or how much mm. you know disturbance through digging, as I mentioned earlier. So I think if we can reduce those stresses... And allow that diversity to naturally build up by not removing all the organic matter. I think the fungi will return unless that ecosystem is really profoundly damaged, which can happen after, you know, decades of, of stock grazing or, or tilling or whatever. But I think oftentimes they will restore themselves if, if given that break, you know. Yeah. The break
0: from so when you say we're sort of, you know, way behind the understanding of botany, what what about what can we learn from like traditional cultures and their understanding and relationship with fungi
1: look i think many first nations people around the world have probably used fungi for very very long time for their you know for the utility in terms of food and medicine, but for other reasons as well. And certainly we know here in Australia, our First Nations people used fungi for all those reasons. They used some truffle species as food. They use some polypores. You've probably seen the ones that grow like an arc often on the side of a tree. We call these polypores or bracket fungi. Many of those are known to have medicinal qualities and certainly various Aboriginal groups in Victoria, New South Wales and elsewhere in the Yordi Yorta as well. So on the Murray and then further north, the, the Yongu up in the Northern Territory, they knew about those medicinal qualities and values of those fungi but also they're also used decoratively and ritually in other ways as well but around the world particularly south americans many asian cultures knew about them what's really hard in in my own experience here into my forays into the ethno mycology that is the human use of fungi is that so much of that knowledge has been lost and so Mm. there are efforts such as by some of the yorta yorta aunties i've been working with to try and retrieve those fragments of knowledge that might be there but I think you know in in a lot of temperate Australia or even further north, and that where people have been moved off land and forbidden mm. to speak their language or, or do their dances or whatever, of course that knowledge has been lost. But it's been really inspiring to work with several different groups: the Wiradjuri, the Jajawarang, the Yorta Yorta, the To see these incredible efforts to try and bring that knowledge back or to try and relearn that knowledge that perhaps has been lost. So it's, it's been an incredible experience, and also the Maori of New Zealand. There's a wonderful Mycologist in New Zealand called Peter Buchanan. who has been working with some elders over there to, again, same thing, to try and understand how different fungi were used for different purposes by traditional Maori people. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's must be so much information there that has been lost, unfortunately. Mm. Um. So, could you, um. So you obviously work with a lot of different groups of people and you talk you've worked with farmers and land care groups. And what are some of the work you're doing with land care groups and farmers to sort of help them understand the use of fungi in the restoration of
1: environments? Sure. So the land care movement is phenomenal. I've been pretty much involved since the beginning. I think it must be over 30 years of land care now. I can't Mm. quite think of the year that it was when Joan Kerner was in premier in Victoria when it first started and um, what's been really interesting is one of the big aims of land care is to get trees back in the soil and you know I can't imagine how many millions of trees must have been put back into the ground since land care started and now I think there's like six or seven thousand land care groups in Australia and it's expanded beyond our shores to I think a dozen other countries as well so it's the most wonderful movement but as with anything The way our understanding of ecology has evolved, our practices in horticulture and gardening have changed in the last few decades, and land care is also going through a shift. And we recognise that while putting trees in the ground is about the best thing we can do to to help cool Mm. a, a heating planet and to help put structure back into soil, if you think about the natural succession and recovery of an environment that's been damaged, It doesn't usually begin with trees. So if you imagine a landscape that's been burnt or bulldozed, logged, whatever, and you've just got bare soil, Mm. the first thing that comes back is not usually a tree. That's usually later in that successional process. And so what I've been trying to encourage people to do is to rebuild things like those soil crusts, You know, what we call cryptogamic crusts. And Mm. that's like a mosaic of different organisms, things like mosses, lichens other fungi bacteria little things like liverworts and hornworts those things as well that collectively form this I guess like a mosaic or tapestry that put this covering or integument on the soil so when say it's been burnt in the next rain it doesn't just blow away or get washed away it actually puts a you know seals the surface of the soil and then if a bird happens to fly over and Excretes a seed or something, that seed is landing somewhere where it might actually have some tiny bit of protection or there's a bit of nutrient supply or a bit of accumulated water. So, I guess what I've been trying to do is to help people think about how an ecosystem naturally develops when it's been disturbed and to try and get that just first start by getting that architecture back into the soil and protecting the surface of the soil rather than just starting with planting trees. I'm not saying we should stop planting trees. Planting trees is fantastic. But by bringing fungi into the equation, we actually increase the chance of those trees to survive. If those trees can plug into a mycorrhizal network or they can take advantage of the nutrients that the fungi are breaking down, you're going to have a much higher success rate of the trees that you plant.
0: So, how do you do that? Like you say, you don't want to use inoculants. How do you then sort of build that fungi back up in it? Just it's
1: really those two things I mentioned before. Like, to if, for example, the area is being grazed, then we need to either fence out the grazing or or limit, you know, reduce it. Put the don't have them there hundred percent of the time. So, just reducing some of those pressures. So, a lot of it's really rather than I mean, it's planting revegetating. Is often much easier than refungusing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you've got that satisfying thing of bringing in your seedling, digging the hole, popping it in, giving it some water and nutrient, putting a tree guard around it and watching it grow. We, we can't refungus in quite the same way because that mycelium, we don't know how vast it is. How much of it do we need? And which plant does it form the relationship with? And which, if it's a truffle fungus, which animal? Is it a betong or a a paddy melon or a wallaby that we need to throw in the wheelbarrow as well to help that that fungus grow. Do you know what I mean? Because of all mm. these connections, if you don't have the, the vector to distribute the spores and you don't have the tree, it forms a relationship with the fungus isn't going to survive. So a lot of it is about, again, letting nature do its thing by creating habitats that fungi, I'm saying, want to con- colonise it's not quite because quite as conscious as that but that yeah. fungi will colonise because there is that diversity of habitats and if if you think of you know if you've got a log lying there and then a stick and another branch and then some smaller leaves all those different microhabitats under that log and on the top of the leaves and all those different microhabitats offer different conditions temperature humidity nutrients whatever that if that spore of a fungus lands, it's got a greater chance of being able to find the right conditions to form its fungus mycelium. So I know we want to be really active and actually mm. bring that fungus, you know, in, but it's just so hard to know what it needs that I think you're better to create the habitat and remove the stresses as the best possible way.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about um just south of here, where it was really badly burnt during the fires. And previous to that, it had been logged completely um yeah i wonder how the fungi does recover from that and you know is it something that might happen within years or decades or hundreds of years it
1: yeah it's right. like I a long process it is and look it's always a matter of scale isn't it an and extent and degree in these sorts of sh- situations you know how how prolonged was the grazing, what, what are the nutrient levels like in the soil, you know, is it really enriched with sulfates or nitrates or whatever, or, you know, there's, it's always, yeah, it depends on the degree of impact. Is it really, really compressed to the point where maybe it actually has to be ripped before we can get, you know, maybe we can't get, the fungi won't colonise it because it's simply too compressed. So it's always mm. depends on the degree, the history, you know, of disturbance and, and the extent of that. And sometimes, yeah, we just do have to give it a helping hand and i worked with a farmer wonderful farmer in sort of towards the wimmera and he inherited a property that had i think a hundred years of grazing of sheep grazing and other than the fact that there was barely any topsoil at all he said it was so compacted it was like ceramic you know he said there's just Mm. no way that he could get anything to grow there and he he did a couple of trials and he ripped a paddock and what he did down in the gully, he brought up a whole lot of organic matter, just sticks and leaves and branches, and he buried it. And two years later, he did some soil testing and could just not believe the, the activity. You know, the, mm-hmm. That organic matter was obviously full of propagules of, of different fungi, of all kinds of invertebrates. And within two years, he managed to actually recreate this diversity in the soil and was then able to plant into it and saw fungi, pee whatever. But in that situation, because it had been so hammered, by past land use it, it did need his his help
0: mm. um, in your book you beautifully describe uh going well beautifully or oh, horrifyingly <laughs> going into a sort of clear fell forest where they have the so-called habitat trees and how that that practice of leaving those habitat trees is actually meaningless could you kind of describe that again what um how, Yeah, what that experience was of sort of seeing that and
1: how useless that that really is. (laughs) Look, that was really, really early on in my first job as a scientist when I was working as a freshwater scientist and I was actually doing some surveys of some alpine creeks for an endangered stonefly and this when when something is known to an endangered species or a listed species is known to occur in an area then we, we want to be careful about you know activities such as logging that can disturb the habitat and threaten those species and so that's why i was actually there but this was actually my very first experience of being in a clearfield logging coop and mm. yeah it was absolutely traumatizing i mean it, it you know i've always you know grew up with such a deep and profound love of trees and the bush and then to see an area just you know absolutely smashed and just Mm. most of the tree has gone just a shattered remnants it was one of those things you don't forget it's you don't just remember that in your mind it's you you absorb that throughout your whole body in some way somehow but Mm. but when i said that the habitat habitat tree was you know it was laughable it's because this particular tree had been so damaged by all the other trees being felled around it that it was just like a, a telegraph pole all the branches had been ripped off (laughs) I said Mm. there was nowhere for something to perch and also because of all the heavy machinery all the soil around had been so compacted excuse me that you wonder whether those mycorrhizal relationships between the fungi and the tree had been damaged through that heavy you know compression of the soil so the idea in itself of habitat, habitat trees isn't a farce but you know we have to be genuine about leaving a tree that truly has value but you know, a single tree, you know. Trees aren't meant to be isolates. They're social. They, They need those connections. And so it needs to be a habitat stand, not a habitat tree, you know. But I think ideas are changing. We are trying to do forestry better. I mean, we understand more about how forests function, that the trees aren't isolated individual units, that they are a connective network that interact. And so I think there is greater knowledge and understanding of of how forests function, but you've always got this competition between maximizing the ecological value and maximizing the economic value of the wood. So you've always got this competing, mm. you know, competing interests.
0: Yeah, it really is sad to witness that. And I think it's probably quite important for everyone to actually see that those sort of clear failed areas to really understand the devastation that happens and yeah, it does yeah. seem to be a long process We'll life to come back after that.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, think of the work that people like David Lindenmeyer has done over the years down in Gippsland and some work that he and another ecologist, El Bau did out of the Australian National University. They were looking at nutrients in soils that had been logged and burned historically. And what they found is that after very, very long periods of time, I think it could have been even 60 years or something, so it's maybe even more 60 to 80 years that key nutrients were still absent in the soil. And what these findings tell us is that we could be vastly underestimating just how long it takes ecosystems to recover after logging, after burning. You know, we often, you know, have tree har- you know, harvesting on fairly quick rotations, 10, 20, 30 years, but in reality, we actually think to get that whole complement of species and nutrients back in the soil again, it could be taking much longer than we thought, and so mm. we might need to, you know, really recalibrate how we how we practice forestry, how we manage forests, how we practice agriculture. Yeah, and
0: is there some input in those um, people? You know, when those people those practices are being put into place, is there input from people who have an understanding of? Fungi and
1: look, I'm not directly working in that field, but I imagine I think slowly, I mean, their work wasn't specifically looking at fungi, but I think slowly we are starting to see the input of mycologists and other ecologists. I've seen this particularly in places like in Fenoscandia, particularly in Sweden.
0: I've yeah. seen you
1: know, a lot more input there into to how we manage ecosystems, and we're seeing, for example, more reserves get set up to protect endangered communities of fungi. You know, that's I mean, we have one here in Australia actually. But this is, I mean, in, in Australia, part of the problem is we don't have enough trained mycologists. We, you know, you still can't really do a degree in mycology in Australia. We, we're seeing more and more units of mycology being introduced into tertiary level courses, and I think we are seeing you know, more positions slowly become available, and that's a really exciting thing. But we just haven't had the expertise here. But that mm. is changing, and it's changing hopefully at a rapid rate. Mm.
0: So you, you work a lot both here and, and overseas. What What's the sort of difference you see between Australia and other countries, in one, in, in the sort of health of the fungi and fungal networks, but also in the awareness of it and practice of conserving it?
1: Look, I think here, I mean, even though if you think, you know, to things like the traditions of collecting truffles or those culinary traditions of eating fungi that are very strong in Europe, certainly there's there's a lot more cultural interest in fungi. But I think here we have a much greater diversity of, you know, think of all the different types of habitats we have here, tropical ecosystems and desert ecosystems and you know, alpine ecosystems. And if you think about Europe, it's actually much more diverse here in Australia. Our continent has all sorts of systems that don't exist there. So it's likely that we are you know, more mega diverse in terms of the greater number of species here. We just don't know as much about them as our mm. European friends. But I think there too, I mean, it, it seems to be that many English-speaking cultures cultures have lost that connection to appreciating fungi as food or even just, you know, their ecological role in the environment. And now that's what I say, we're in a bit of a fungal awakening or a fungal turn at the Mm. moment where we're starting to recognise that. And there's all these new entry points, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program. But certainly in Europe, there's been such a, it's been so much easier for me to, you know, join a, a group who are studying fungi or to go out on forays, even in somewhere like Switzerland, which is such a little country, you know, it's only a bit more than half the size of Tasmania, but there's absolutely dozens of different groups who go out on forays. They have over 400 different inspection offices where you can take along your basket of in, of edible fungi and get experts mm. to look at them for you. So there's certainly, you know, older traditions. I mean, probably our traditions are actually older here in Australia in terms of our First Nations knowledge but the, the the constant continual knowledge there has been going on for hundreds of years. And so it's been fascinating for me to see these cultural differences and to try and understand why English-speaking cultures have you know, somehow lost it or, or maybe we didn't have it in the first place, that interest in fungi. And I've certainly learned a lot. And even within Europe, I mean, your Italians have a very different approach to your Swedes who are different, again, to the French and the Swiss and the, mm. and the Eastern Europeans. So it's been the most incredible adventure of learning from all sorts of different people and trying to understand their approach to fungi.
0: Mm. Well, your um other book which I have with me here, Wild Mushrooming, a Guide for Foragers. Um, I would highly recommend that to anyone who wants to sort of connect a bit more with the actual mushrooms and the edible side of it. It's a great sort of starting point for identifying those that you can and can't eat and where to look for them.
1: Oh thank you Robin and I think the thing we really try and emphasize in that book is that if you're going to be a forager you need to not only understand the edible species but all those doppelganger or toxic lookalikes you need to learn in concert with the the edible ones but also we try to try to set that book up where it starts with having encouraging someone to have a basic understanding of of ecology and then overlay that with conservation and then put foraging on top you know we're trying to discourage the you know, the indiscriminate taking of everything and hope yeah. it's forgettable, but that it's done with a, a consciousness and awareness. So we don't end up with the same sorts of issues we see throughout many European countries, but also in North America and South America, where there's a lot of concern about the impacts, potential impacts of foraging. So we're trying to, I guess, set up a, a bit of a specifically Australian ethical philosophy that's a little bit more about you know tempering your taking and Doing mm. it more consciously so there's enough for everyone and all the animals as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's always important. But um,
1: yeah, and I wonder, you
0: know, mush- mushrooms are always are, uh, you know, people can be a bit fearful of them because there is that potential to misidentify them. But it does seem that there is a sort of fungal awakening. <laughs> mm-hmm. at, yeah, that people are realizing the yeah, the nature of fungi and all the different things that it can do and and how important it is for us.
1: Yeah. And this is just like it it so excites me, Robin. I mean, sometimes people will come along on a foray and will go out and, you know, the the, the best comment I receive is, you know, is a comment with some one person said recently, look, I came along just so I could learn a couple of species of edible fungi, and and now I'm actually actually not interested in that because there's yes. just so much more to fungi than I could possibly have dreamed of, and I, that that's what really excites me when someone expands their idea of of what nature is, how it works, and why we have to you know look after all all aspects, including what's what we can't see under the soil and the subterrane.
0: Mm. Well, I think you are obviously sharing your knowledge far and wide, like the mycelial networks that you're talking <laughs> about. And, um, yeah, on your website there is um, a lot of beautiful imagery and words as well as events that you have coming up. So for anyone that is interested in learning more, um, you can go to Alison's website, which is?
1: dot alisonpulio.com that's alisonpoulio com.
0: so i'm um, i know you have some uh, fungi festivals up my way later in the year so i'm looking forward to learning more and having a wander through the forest with you
1: Fantastic, Robin. I really appreciate your interest and I so look to look forward to joining you in the bush. Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay, thanks, Alison.
1: Thanks so much, Robin.
0: You have been listening to the Pip Podcast. You can also subscribe to our magazine, explore articles on growing, fermenting, composting, foraging, and much more, as well as watch our videos and listen to our podcast episodes, all on our website pipmagazine.com.au or follow us on socials.